This morning, um, we're going to lay some groundwork for a study of Paul's letters to the Thessalonian church, First and Second Thessalonians. Um, Lord willing, we're going to work through this year these two short letters, and then on to the book of Revelation. Uh, by the way, I'd also like to get back to the book of Second Corinthians at some point soon as well. And there are a couple of gospels that I have yet to preach through. Um, I really like working in the Old Testament as well, so we'll see. But there are a couple of reasons for wanting to study First and Second Thessalonians and then Revelation. And doing them back to back like that, and not the least of which are the thematic connections in the book. Um, They're all heavily connected to eschatology, or what are sometimes called the end times. But the biggest reason that I want to work through these books is not just because we're curious about those things, but really because they were written to bring hope and comfort to God's people. It seems today that when we read of the day of the Lord, we do so with apprehension, sometimes even some fear. We look at the, at the signs of the times and we see them all over the place and we lament. But Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, reminds us that, that we really ought to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We should be waiting for our blessed hope hope. And as we consider the epistle, um, Paul's letter to the first Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians, we, we need to do a, a little bit of background on the book and um, really into the background of the, of the planting of the church of Thessalonica. Um, because the culture in which the Thessalonian Christians lived and worshipped is is not all that different from our own culture, actually. It's very clear when we look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, which is where we're going to start today, with the planting of the church in Thessalonica, or some say Thessalonica. You can pronounce it however you want. I'm going to say Thessalonica because that's what I've always said. Acts 17, 1 to 9 says this. <clears throat> Now when they had passed through um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's stop here and pray. Father, I pray that, uh, that I would decrease and Christ would increase. I pray, Lord, that you would give us what we need today, which is to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that your spirit would guide us in understanding the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that stands out to me in this passage um, is that what we're beginning to see, if you read through the book of Acts at some point, what you begin to see, especially here, is as the gospel starts to spread and, and as the church starts to spread to the ends of the earth, you begin to see the rhetoric against Christians really begins to escalate. So just compare the statements made, the charges brought against Paul and Silas here with the previous chapter where Paul and Silas had been in Philippi and they were brought before the magistrates and they were charged with, as the previous chapter, Acts 16, verses 20 and 21 says, so this is the charges in Philippi. They said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And now they've, they've continued their mission work into Thessalonica. And you can clearly see here, as we read through that, that an angry mob catches a kind of a whiff of blood and, and goes after whoever they can find. And notice the charges that are brought against them now, just in the next city, Thessalonica. It's verses 6 and 7. The charges are this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. But here's why I believe the, the Thessalonians' situation is, is relevant to us living in America in 2024. This is a headline from the Washington Times, from what is now ancient history. This is from May 10th, 2016, a long time ago. Here's the headline. Harvard professor, colon, start treating Christian conservatives like Nazis. That's the headline. And just to remind you, because Harvard has actually been in the news lately, Harvard was founded by Puritans to be a training ground for pastors, a training college for pastors. But listen to this from the article, okay? A Harvard law professor has called for liberals to begin treating like Nazis those who subscribe to Christian or conservative beliefs. Mark Tushnet, that's the Harvard professor, he said, conservatives and Christians have lost the culture wars. And now the question is, how to deal with the losers. My own judgment is that taking a hard line, you've lost, live with it, is better than to accommodate the losers, he wrote. Trying to be nice to the losers didn't work well after the Civil War, nor after Brown, Mr. Tushnet wrote, citing a Supreme Court case on segregation. And taking a hard line seemed to work reasonably well in Germany and Japan after 1945. So when he says start treating them like Nazis, he's, he's, not being hyper, uh, hy he's not speaking in hyperbole. Hyperbolic, is that right? I don't think that's right. He's not speaking in hyperbole. He's being literal. 
Mr. Tushnet said that liberals should stop being so hesitant to advance their agenda through the judiciary, saying a, major, a majority of federal judges have been appointed by Democratic presidents and they need not worry about, quote, reversal by the Supreme Court, haha, now that the former Justice Antonin Scalia is dead. That's an amazing quote from 2016. But let's not get sidetracked here. My point in bringing up this story is not to get political, but rather to show you the parallels between the Bible and our lives now. It's to point out that the Bible is actually extremely relevant. It speaks to all of these issues. It speaks to issues that we face every day, such as an escalating hostility toward Christians. Just think about this escalating hostility toward Christians just between the years 2016 and 2024. 2020 and 2024. So this morning, as we, as we do this background work to these Thessalonian letters, there are two takeaways that I'd like you to, to pull from this passage in Acts 17. The first takeaway is about our methods of evangelism, and the second has to do with the response. So let's walk through this, and I trust by the end um, you'll have this figured out and be able um, to see where we're headed over this next year. Well, first, a little bit of background. At the end of Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas have been asked by the city authorities to leave Philippi. And on the way out of town, they make a stop at, at Lydia's house in order to encourage uh, the brethren, the saints that met there, um, the church that met at Lydia's house. And then after that, it really must have been a difficult goodbye, they leave Philippi. Now, Thessalonica, um, which still exists as a, as a major Greek city, it's about 100 miles west of Philippi. And so these other two cities there mentioned in verse 1 are probably mentioned because as they walked that 100 miles, they probably stayed in those cities, spent the night there as they traveled. But one of the things that you might notice as the story of Acts unfolds, kind of from a big picture, is that Paul will begin to, he'll begin to kind of bypass or at least not spend much time in the smaller towns, and instead he's going to head for the bigger cities. There are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that not every Greek town had a synagogue, and uh, while Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles, he always went to the Jew first and then to the Greek, or he, he searched to see if there were Jews First, he searched to see if there were Christians in the town, and if there weren't, he would go to the synagogue and start there, and usually after a little while, they would kick him out, and he would take some with him and plant a church. That was his pattern. Another reason that Paul probably started to focus on the larger cities for evangelism is that he saw them as very strategic to the spread of the gospel. See, he would go into a large city like Thessalonica, he would plant and establish a church, and then he would move to the next city. And so it was up to the, to the Thessalonians, uh, for example, to, to then spread the gospel throughout their own region, to the local cities and towns, to the suburbs around the city. So Thessalonica was a large city. In fact, it was the capital of all of Macedonia. Um, and in the first century, around this time when Paul and Silas visited, uh, 
Historians estimate that it had a population of somewhere between 40 and 65,000 people. And just for reference, I looked this up yesterday, Logan County in 22 had a population of just a little over 46,000 people. So Thessalonica in a smaller area had probably a little bit more people than are in all of Logan County. So it's a pretty good sized city. And this city is governed by um, five or six, uh, a council of five or six magistrates, city authorities, verse 6 calls them. Now, at this point in the history of the Roman Empire, there was a phenomena that had developed um, that has become known as the imperial cult, which really explains the accusation that they make against them in verse 7. Essentially, the, the core belief of this cult was that the emperor, the Roman emperor, was the universal savior whose benevolence and kindness and aid should be proclaimed as good news throughout the region or really throughout the whole world. Does that sound familiar? They would proclaim, Caesar is Lord. They would preach that good news. So the local city authorities, um, wherever, in the Roman Empire, they would be expected to enforce a loyalty to the Roman emperor in order to maintain the, the peace of the region and to help the city really remain in the good graces of the Roman authorities. The last thing any city authorities wanted was for the Roman army to descend upon them and enforce peace. Now that background should kind of help us understand why the, the people and the, and the city authorities reacted to Paul and Silas in the way that they did. See, there's a, there's a significant amount of fear in the Roman Empire. It's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but it was a, a brutally enforced peace. It causes these cities to react in the way that they do, all of the cities really that Paul visits uh, really, it's not a reaction against Paul, it's a reaction against the gospel itself. You can see their fear in the, in the charges that they bring them up on. And the fear, and, and we can really see this in, in our own headlines as well, their fear was that Rome would withhold tax revenue, that, that, that companies would stop doing business there, that it would severely hurt the economy. That's their primary fear here. And so as was his custom, Paul comes into town, Paul and Silas come into town and they find the synagogue. Now it says in verse two that he spent three Sabbaths there in the synagogue. Now we shouldn't take that to mean he was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. Um, in fact, his first letter to the Thessalonians indicates that he was there for some time, possibly a few months. In fact, he set up his tent-making business in town where he would come into contact with many Greeks. And the only reason that this is important is because there were others there in Thessalonica who came to Christ, not just the Jews. So he didn't just spend three weeks in the synagogue and then move on. But Luke here, in, in writing this account in Acts, he focuses our attention on the time that he was in the synagogue. This is where this can really fit in with us. Because while he was there, Paul engages with the people in four different ways. And each of these ways, I believe, is actually applicable to, to all of us in this room 
today in some way or another. It says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained, he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then, he, and then he said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He reasoned, explained, proved from the scriptures and proclaimed that, it was the, that Jesus is the Christ. So the first way in which Paul engaged with these people in evangelism and sharing with them the good news is that he reasoned with them. And the Greek word, therefore, reasoned, is where we get the English word dialogued. He spoke with them from the scriptures. This wasn't Paul up front preaching to them, not in this situation. This was him sitting down, opening up the Bible, opening up the scriptures, and having a conversation with them. He asked them questions and gave them answers. He spoke with them and engaged them in conversations about the scriptures that they both held to. Remember, he's in the synagogue. He's talking to Jews. They held to the scriptures too, the Old Testament. This is very applicable to us um, because most of us, most of us will not be invited to, to come and preach the gospel to crowds. A few of us might, but most of us won't. In fact, most of us would turn down that invitation if they had gotten it. Um, we may be asked to say a few words here or there in a crowd. Maybe we'll speak at a funeral or a wedding reception, something like that. Maybe we'll have the opportunity to speak to, to some sort of family gathering or uh, a gathering of friends or a business event or, or something like that. But most of our evangelism will take place in situations just like this. We will dialogue. We will talk about the scriptures. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that as Christians, we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I would remind you that, that Peter is writing, 1 Peter in chapter 3 there, he's writing to everyday lay Christians, not necessarily a pastoral epistle. So here's just a, a, just a little bit of um, practical pastoral advice. Read your Bibles. R read your Bibles. Grab a Bible reading plan. Start working on it. Familiarize yourself with the word of God. Mark it up. Write in it. It's okay. Get to know even some different versions. Don't be afraid of the King James. Don't be afraid of the NIV. Just read it. Read your Bible. Read it often. And then with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Dedicate your life to reading the scriptures. Now, back to Thessalonica here. As Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, he sought to prove, it says here, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he does this in three ways. These are the remaining three ways in which he engaged with these people. So not only did he dialogue with them, did he reason with them, did he talk with them, but he also explains he explains them. This is where he opened and expounded or, or revealed the truth from the scriptures. 
Paul opened the scriptures. He revealed for them how all of the Jewish scriptures, everything that they believed was the word of God, from Genesis through Malachi, all of the scripture that these people in the synagogue believed and and trusted, these same scriptures anticipate and teach about Israel's Redeemer. So not only did, did he dialogue with them, but he also explained That word means that he taught them in a more formal manner. So over three Sabbaths, Paul acted as a a visiting rabbi, and he would teach them the scriptures. Now this is important. See, the Jews already believed in the authority of scripture, at least of the Old Testament. That wasn't Paul's argument, likely. They were already waiting for a redeemer. Even the Jews that are not all that faithful were waiting for a redeemer. The problem with Jesus, their problem with Jesus, is that he wasn't very kingly because he was born in a stable to peasants. But they had an even bigger problem with Jesus. He was dead, or so they'd been told. Sure, there were rumors here and there that he had come back to life, but the authorities in Jerusalem had addressed that problem. They said that his disciples had stolen the body. Matthew 28 tells us that story. And so Paul had an uphill battle. He couldn't just explain. He couldn't just teach with authority. He also needed to prove what he was saying, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And that term, prove, it has certain legal connotation to it. He proved, he presented, he made allegations, and then he backed those allegations up with evidence, and he laid it all out for them to see. Now, we don't know what passages Paul used to do all of this. We could argue that all of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, point us to Christ, but But in some of them, the the light of Christ shines a little brighter than others, right? For some passages of the the Old Testament, for example, you can see Christ so clearly when we read it with, especially with Christian eyes, Holy Spirit-enlightened eyes. So as an example of a passage that, that Paul could have used, Um, One where the light of Christ shines bright. Turn over now to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. As you turn there, I would remind you that this was written several hundred years before Christ. And it was accepted by the Jews as Scripture, as um, inspired by God. And so this psalm, which is really only 12 verses long, This provides us with a great opportunity for evangelism. When people ask you for the reason for the hope that is within you, you can turn to this psalm and you can reason with them. You can explain and prove your hope. Listen to verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
So on this first point, if you're sharing a reason for the hope that is within you from, from a passage like this, this is about the nature of sin. Sin is wicked rebellion. That's what we're seeing in this passage. Sin is brazen and bold. Sin is rage and fury. If sin had its way, it would annihilate God's government. Sin seeks to dethrone God. And that is true of all sin. The nations, the peoples, the the kings, the rulers, these are representatives of all the people. And not only are they against the Lord, they're against His anointed, the one who sits on David's eternal throne, the one who will be known as the Christ, the Messiah, to come. And sin is... Sin is folly. It is foolishness. This endeavor against God is in vain. Do you see it there? And it will only lead to defeat and death. But notice the judgment of God. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jump down to verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So if point one is about the nature of sin, point two is about the powerful judgment of God. It is easy for God to, to restrain his enemies. It is appropriate that Yahweh is known as the King of kings and Lord of lords. The fact that God does whatever He pleases among the armies of heaven and whatever He pleases among the inhabitants of earth, that's the truth. And it's also true that sin and wickedness will not go unpunished. The prophet Isaiah says of the wicked in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. John Newton. John Newton said, He is Lord over those that hate him. He rules over them with an, a rod of iron and so deposes, disposes their designs so as to make them, though against their will, the means and instruments of promoting his own purposes and glory. They are his unwilling servants even when they rage against him. See, what these, what these verses are saying is that it is easy for God to destroy his enemies. One light swing of his iron rod will smash them like a piece of pottery. In other words, sin is wicked and God will judge. Sin is wicked and God will judge. But look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, 
the ends of the earth your possession. This is the promise of God. Scripture will not be broken. God's promises will stand. His promises to his people through Abraham and Moses that the nations will be their, their heritage, that the earth will be their possession. Those promises will be fulfilled. His promises to David that a king will eternally be set on Zion, on David's throne. Those promises will be fulfilled. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. His kingdom will triumph. That's verse 8. Nothing can stop its progress. Remember, at, at this point in Thessalonica, if Paul's explaining something like this to the Thessalonian Jews... They're on board. Um, they understand. They agree with this. They know that sin is wicked. They believe that God will judge. They trust that God will keep his promises, that his kingdom will be established. But then we come to verses 10 to 12, which explicitly points us at the Son of God. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There can be no other interpretation but that the Christ, the coming Messiah, will also be the Son. And it's at this point that Paul would be in danger of, of losing some of the Jews, which he did. But many also believed. They put their hope in the promise right there. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him, in the Son of God. I don't have any idea what passage Paul may have used with the people of Thessalonica. But he used the Scriptures to reason, to explain, and to prove that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Maybe he went to something like Psalm 2. Maybe he went to Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But as you share a reason for the hope that is within you, I want you to see especially what Paul is doing here. He wasn't appealing to their emotions. He wasn't telling them how they could get to heaven or how they could, um, the ways that Jesus helped them have a better life now. He simply appealed to Scripture. Appeals to Scripture are appeals to the truth. Whether the world thinks the truth is relevant or not. Appeals to scripture are appeals to truth and they are appeals to history. Not mythology, not fantasy, but true historical facts. And Paul brings them to the conclusion, or at least attempts to, that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. 
And this is, where, this is where we see the final way in which Paul engaged them. He proclaimed to them that this Jesus is the Christ. Look again at verse 2. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So here's his line of reasoning. We wandered in the middle looking at Psalm 2. I wanted to do that as an example. But here is Paul's essential message. First, the Messiah must suffer and rise again. Second, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And there are many eyewitnesses to this. He, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that, that he appealed to, to Cephas and then, and then to the 12 and then, and then to 500 brothers at one time to James, to go talk to some of these people, he's saying. But I also, he says, as of one untimely born, he appealed, appeared also to me. Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and there are many eyewitnesses to this. Therefore, Jesus must be the Messiah. He must be the Christ. Well, what was the response? It was actually twofold. Verse 4 tells us, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, Jew and Gentile, men and women. For many, Paul's arguments worked. They were persuaded. They looked at the evidence from the life and death and teachings of Jesus Christ. They weighed that evidence against the message of the scriptures and they joined Paul and Silas. And that word for joined in verse 4, I can only find that word used one time in scripture. And it literally means to come together to make complete or to fill up completely. The idea here is, is that they, they got it. They believed and then they fully immersed themselves in the church. Whatever the consequences, we are a part of this assembly of Christians. We believe together that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. We believe this and we believe it together no matter what the consequences are. This is church membership actually in its most basic and important form. Because look at the response of the others. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting these charges. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. These Jewish leaders here were jealous for their own customs and traditions. They were trying to protect their old way of life and they saw it slipping away and with it all of the authority that they wielded over the people. They saw it slipping away with this conversion to Christianity of so many people. And so in order to get the attention of the city authorities, they recruit some sketchy characters, um, 
Antifa, and they form a mob, and they start a riot so that the whole city will be thrown into chaos. Look at what these Christians are doing. This is a very thing, this chaos is a very thing that the Romans hated. When they went looking for Paul and Silas, where they were staying, evidently here with, with a man named Jason, they couldn't find them. And so they dragged Jason before the authorities. And there are echoes here in all of this of the conflict back in Philippi. Back then, the charge was that Paul and Silas was, were disturbing our city. But now, now they're turning the world upside down. Before, before they were advocating unlawful customs. But now, they are saying that there is another king, Jesus. The rhetoric against the Christian message, against the gospel is ramping up. And verse 8 says this, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And Jason and the rest were only released, verse 9 tells us, because they paid either a bribe or, or a fine. Now, I started off by telling you two things. First, that the Bible is relevant. It's relevant to us. I hope that you could have seen that this morning from both Old and New Testaments. And the second is that the, that the rhetoric against the Christian message is ramping up. It was ramping up then, it's ramping up today. But I don't want to leave you here being concerned that the enemies of God, the enemies of Christianity are going to demand total and unconditional surrender. I don't want to leave you here just thinking that's the point of this. I want you to leave here today thinking about the hope that we have in Christ. I want you to leave here today with a, with a plan to prepare yourself to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have in Christ. I want you to leave here today better equipped to be able to reason with them from the scriptures. To go to Psalm 2 and say, the kings of the earth have set themselves against God. Do you think that's true? It's hard to argue with that. I want you to leave here today better equipped to be able to reason with them from the scriptures, being better able to explain and prove that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and being able to say, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's going to take work on your part. That's going to take work on your part. You, you, you have to listen. You have to study. You have to read. You have to pray. You have to be prepared. You, you have to do this. You have to be willing to turn the world upside down and proclaim that there is another king and his name is Jesus. And if you do this, you may see some persuaded and they may even join us. But many others will be jealous. They will be zealous to protect themselves and their own sinful lives. They will oppose the truth. They will openly advocate treating you poorly. They will mock you. 
They will mock your beliefs and they will make fun of our God. They will treat you with contempt and, and even propose that you, we, sh- we should be treated like war criminals. But let me remind you of something. These two allegations against the Christians there in Thessalonica, that they had turned the world upside down and that they were proclaiming another king, Jesus, those accusations were true. They were more true than those people realized. Christianity turned the world upside down because Jesus Christ has turned the world upside down. And they were proclaiming another king, but he's not just any other king. He's a king of kings and the Lord of lords. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus Christ is building his church. The Holy Spirit is using Christians just like us to do it. You don't have to wait for a miracle. You don't have to wait for special signs and wonders. You've got the Word of God. You've got the Scriptures. You have the tools. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. So we could finish like this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope because the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. If Christ is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we think of the establishment of a church, the drama of a, of a mob and a riot, the drama of um, the conflict and Roman soldiers coming in to shut them down. Father, that war between the world and your church, between the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and those who are on the Lord's side has been going on since the beginning. Father, I thank you that we are on your side. And I pray that as we come to the table, as we proclaim Christ's death until he returns, as we eat and drink, renewing the covenant, as we leave here today, that we would leave confident in you. Confident that that the work that you have begun in us, you will bring to completion until the day of Christ. And we long for that day, Lord, when we shall see you face to face. And so we eat and we drink and we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until he returns. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.